Talkman Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and the only place you can hear the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho, it's Duff McKagan calling you. I uh, just had my uh, daily two cups of very, very strong coffee. I'm ready to take on the world and do 1,000 push-ups. Uh, listen, a friend of mine was dating this uh, flight attendant uh, from Helsinki, and he dropped her off at work one day, and she disappeared into thin air. Thank you very much. Goodbye. I had to think of that one uh, and, and read it a few times before I figured out what the f*** he was talking about. <laughs> Uh, they can't all be gems, but yeah, Duff is a gem for sending in his joke of the week every single Friday for over two and a half years. He never misses on delivering, although sometimes he misses on the laughs like that one right there. But thank you so much, Duff, uh, for doing it every week. Uh, we love you, and we love helping out the Juvenile Diabetes Research Funding, JDRF, a great, great charity that takes care of, uh, of curing and trying to find the cure for type 1 diabetes. And I'm supporting the JDRF this year with my very first Christmas song. All the proceeds from this song will benefit JDRF and to find a cure for type 1 diabetes. Talking about Chris Jericho and the Christmas Elves cover of the Kinks classic, Father Christmas. Let's hear it now.
Christmas, give us some money. We got no time for your silly toys. Father Christmas, please hand it over. We'll beat you up, so don't make us annoyed. Father Christmas, give us some money. My version of Father Christmas. You can get it wherever you buy and stream music, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify. Available everywhere. Remember, all proceeds from this uh, single go towards uh, finding the cure for type 1 diabetes with the JDRF. All right, right to business again. Good friend of mine, Michael Sweet, Striper's lead singer and guitar player. He returns to talk as Jericho to dis- uh, discuss the 33rd anniversary of Striper's To Hell with the Devil, their classic album. And Mike just got back from a solo acoustic tour of Australia. He's uh, going to tell us all about that and his uh, latest solo record, 10, because it's his 10th solo record. We're going to talk all about that and more with Michael, the making of To Hell with the Devil and where the band was at the time, way back in 1986 when it came out, how it blew them through the roof and made them into the uh, worldwide success that they are today. So, so talking with uh, Michael Sweet, returning to talk is Jericho. He's always got so much stuff going on, but... Uh, interestingly enough, you just came back from your solo tour of Australia, and uh, you said you're still in bed, jet lagged. I'm jet lagging. I, it's it's always the case coming back from Australia or Japan or anywhere on that side of the world globe. And uh, yeah, I don't know what it is, man. It, going there is not too bad, but coming back, you know, you go to bed at two in the morning, you you sleep till two in the afternoon. At least I do. Right, and you guys have been doing a lot of those tours over the last few years. With, with I know you went to Korea, and there's always Japan tours, and um, whether it's with Striper or with yourself, you have pretty good following over in that part of the world. You know what we do, believe it or not, and um, you know when we go to Korea and we play, we did a uh, a festival over there, a big stadium, and we you know it, it wasn't a packed stadium, but it was it was a good crowd. And Japan, we're doing doing like 1,500, 1,500 seat venues over there. Um, and, you know, Japan was the first place we, we went to internationally. And we literally went there right on the heels of uh, the soldiers in the command album and didn't even finish mixing the album and flew right to Japan and, and performed. And that's when we recorded uh, live in Japan. So we've always had a really good following there. Uh, surprisingly enough, I mean, back in the day, we used to think about, well, how is that possible? Because here we are, a Christian band. And, you know, Japan is, is made up primarily of, you know, non-Christians, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you would think, okay, how does that work? And that, that's for any country that we we visit and, and we see great turnouts. And I think it comes down to, the music people like the music people are moved by the music and uh regardless of the message and i think you can reverse that coin too with uh, mainstream bands you know band like slayer or, or any other band for that matter 
you know, they sing about this or the devil or, or drugs or whatever it is. And, and people just, they like the music. I think too, like, especially from going to Japan as many times as, as we've both gone, they do have a, a fascination for American music. I think the fact that they, that you are, you know, Striper being kind of a, such an outwardly Christian band, even though they might not be Christians as religion, I think they think it's cool that you're doing it because it's something different that uh, no other band, you know, especially in that part of the world, there's no Buddhist heavy metal bands or whatever you might say. Right, right. And that's, a, yeah, true. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I do think that the Japanese especially, they're very disciplined people and they're very, uh, you know, I think they admire people who are disciplined and we are, mm-hmm. you know, Striper, Striper is a disciplined band and not only in terms of music and trying to stay in shape and this and that, but I mean, our, our message, you know, we're very, we don't waver from that and we have a lot of integrity and, or at least we try to, to have and, and stay on track and do what we're here to do. And I think that they admire that. Yes, Absolutely. Quick note about uh, Striper Live in Japan. Once again, is the the kind of the long form VHS you guys released. There's like a little interview at the end, and you have the acronym for Striper: uh, <laughs> <laughs> Salvation Through Redemption, <laughs> Yielding Peace, Encouragement, and Righteousness. <laughs> Who's that? That's that was Roberts. Oh, that was yeah. Roberts. Okay. Yeah. Any, anything like that, you got to give credit to Robert because he, he he came up with it. He was the mastermind behind all that stuff, and you know the name, the the acronym, the uh, the yellow and black, and that was his thing. Music was my thing, and all that other stuff was Rob's thing. But man, I, I'll never forget when we had to do those videos. We didn't know anything about it. And as they're filming and, and we're doing the video, uh, they hand us each a mic and say, we interview you now. Message to Japan, fans. And, and we're like, what? What do you mean? Yeah, just say something. Boom, you know, go. Red lights on. <laughs> and we all said what we said. And, you know, people will argue with me on this, some diehard fans. But it was the cheesiest, corniest, silliest thing ever. Everything that we said. At least in my opinion, I can't watch it. I, I mean, I, I cannot watch. I think Timmy says like rock and roll. And throws, <laughs> his, throws his stuff. <laughs> it's just like you know, I watched some of my earlier interviews in wrestling, and and I remember I did one in '91 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and for some un determined reason i decided that having an elvis memphis accent <laughs> and elvis tone was really want to thank all the fans and really love you i'm like what the hell was i thinking <laughs> and they probably loved it right <laughs> well like you said watching it back now is cringeworthy but for the hardcore fans it's like ah oh, that interview you did was amazing i'm like yeah amazingly bad right <laughs> dude dude i can't i can't watch that video especially my when I, when uh, you know 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when my kids were young, they used to always want to watch that video. Mm-hmm. And and they would always want to watch it when we had guests over. Oh, so, you know, there was five, six, seven, eight people there at the house. And honest to God, whenever that would happen, I would leave. I'd go get in the car and go to the market <laughs> and, and get out of there because I couldn't watch it. That's how bad it was. It, not just those interviews, but the, the spandex pants, I mean, were probably – as tight as they could have been. And then they, they use zoom, uh, you know, yeah. even more so. 
And I'm like, God, and I was, I, I had to get out. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's uh, quite the, uh, quite the spectacle. You were, you were letting Jeez. everything, uh, letting everything fly. Good Lord. Sure. <laughs> but let, let's talk about the reason why you went to, to, to Australia just quickly, because I find it very cool that you did an acoustic tour and watching it, you know, on, on, on some Instagram posts and stuff, it's just you on stage with an acoustic guitar, uh, I think you're using maybe some loops or a little bit of a drum machine backup, but how is that playing completely on your own, not behind a wall of guitars and kind of screaming distorted vocals, which is, you know, if you're not nailing it, it still sounds close, but when it's acoustic, it's just you and a guitar. There's, yeah. there's nowhere to hide basically. Yeah, no, there's not. And it's very, it's terrifying. I mean, especially if you're not at a hundred percent. You know, if you're at 100%, it's terrifying. If you're at 90%, it's a complete horror show. Right. You know, if you're at 50%, you don't, I don't want to go on. And it's like, it, it, it happens a lot. And, and that's, I say to myself, why do I do this? Why do I put myself through this punishment, this torture? I, and what I mean by that is I love doing it. But I don't like the part about nowhere to hide and I'm feeling under the weather and it's, you know, my nerves kick in. That's the stuff I don't like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one of those things at the same time, there's something to be said for it. The bareness of it, you know, it's really special. You know, I go out there with a guitar and I play these songs and really their original state. I mean, most of these songs, and not a lot of people know this, but most of these songs, even the metal tracks, uh, were written on an acoustic guitar. That's where they start. It's just me right. being too lazy to set up my rig. I grab an acoustic guitar off the wall, start strumming, and I write a song. And then later, I plug in. And uh, it's kind of cool to hear him uh, in that form. And, you know, so far, everybody that comes to these acoustic shows really seems to like it. You know, it's a stripped-down version, but it's a much more intimate, personable Version. It almost feels like all these people are coming into my living room, and we're just hanging out. And I'm saying, "Hey, you know, let me grab my guitar, man. Let's 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 play a few songs here." And it, it's like that. Gotcha. And, and and the thing is too, because you get a chance to play some of the songs. You know, obviously there's a, a real heavy striper contingent, but you get to do some of the Sweet and Lynch stuff and some of your solo stuff. Very cool tunes from Boston, which I kind of, kind of think is a forgotten part of your career in a lot of ways. That, that must be, is that kind of one of the reasons why you do this as well, to, to have some diversity? Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to take it a step further at some point, put together a full band and go out and do a bunch of songs that I've never played before. Mm. But I mean, this is an opportunity for me to kind of touch on everything. It's crazy because sometimes I'll say, you know, I had the opportunity to play with Boston and it, it almost feels like in the room, like nobody knew that. Right. You know, it was such a bleep on the radar that not a lot of people know that. And Sweet Lynch, some people know, some people don't. You know, some of the solo albums, some people never even heard of them. I mean, it's it's crazy to me. And and yet they're fans. They're there to see me. You would think that they would know everything about right, me. Right, But they don't, always. Yeah, you think it's like the hardcore Michael Sweet fans that know that you have 10 solo albums. Yeah, man. But, you know, I love doing it. it it's... There's something really special and unique about it. I do face things uh, from time to time that are unbearable. I'm, I'll never forget, I went over to South America, and my first show there, uh, acoustic, 
solo, same same deal. And uh, the promoter comes backstage and he says, I wanted to let you know, very nonchalantly, I wanted to let you know that uh, Jeff Tate is here. <laughs> and I said, what? Why would Jeff Tate be here? What are, you, what are you talking about? And he says, yes, come, let me show you. And he takes me to the side of the curtain and right in front of my microphone at my feet is Jeff Tate and his wife drinking wine. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, my God, I got to go out and sing acoustically to one of the greatest voices in metal ever for an hour and a half and try not to sweat, you know? <laughs> and I did. And, you know, he was great. He was singing the words of the songs and it was awesome. But, I mean, facing things like that acoustically, it puts on that extra bit of pressure because you have, like you said earlier, you have nothing to hide behind at all. No loud amps, no band, just you and your voice. That's it. Well, it's really kind of a true, true artistry. You know, like, let's see how good you really are, because once again, the songs that you're singing too, those melodies ain't no joke, as we say, very high, high melodies and stuff. And like you said, you got to sing them almost clean uh, without kind of the balls and the grit in your voice. So it won't really fit the acoustic arrangement, right? Yeah, for sure, man. It's it's a whole different animal. It really is. And, uh, you know, I rely on Robert so much for, you know, the groove and his fills coming out of a fill and knowing where to land and the Oz for dual harmonies and vocals and, and the groove, the bass player and Perry and his vocals. And when you don't have any of that stuff, you're thinking about it. Like I'm thinking about it through the whole set. Like, dang, wish I had Oz right now. Right. Or, oh shoot. I could have used Perry right there. You know, and I even joke about it on stage throughout the set, but again, there's something really cool about it. And the only way to understand and experience what I'm saying is to just come out and see a show. You got to come to a show sometime and, and then you say, okay, I get it. You know, it's, it's really cool. Do you do it, uh, A, we mentioned for something different. Do you do it to challenge yourself as a musician as well? I do. I do it to challenge myself as a musician. I do it to challenge myself as a person. I like to work. Mm. I think people that see me and people that know me know that, you know, I'm somewhat of a workaholic. And I try to balance that because obviously that can overshadow priorities in your life, like your family, right? Like God, church, and things that should take precedence and, and be a priority. I try to balance that and not work so much that I put those things aside. But at the same time, I'm not one of those guys that can sit still. I'm not a guy that can have a day off and say, hey, okay, I'm going to just sit on the couch and eat potato chips. Mm -hmm. That's not me. I like to be out playing all the time. Well, it's amazing to me too, and playing all the time and composing because if you look at your body of work over the last, let's say, five years, there's probably almost ten albums that have been released. And of course, the, the newest solo record is ten, uh, meaning huh, ten solo records, which is pretty crazy on its own. But it's a cool idea that you had of kind of incorporating a different guitar player to come in and do guitar solos which is even more uh, interesting because you're a great lead guitar player. And I know a lot of times you feel like you don't get the credit for being a great guitar player in Striper. So on your own solo album, you bring in other guitar players. I do, man. And, and you know, people scratch their heads on that one and they think, well, you've been talking so long about the fact that you play guitar and you want to be known as a guitar player. And I do. So why don't you play all the guitars on your solo albums? And, and I'll tell you why. Because I also wrestle with the fact that when I do play guitar, it's uh, instantly identifiable as Striper. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because I, I have a very unique tone and I have a very unique style of playing. And when I, the more guitar I, I play and the more solos I write, the more that I play on a solo album, the more you're going to think it sounds like a Stripe album. And I already have that problem, not that it's a problem, but people already think, better part of me, son of man. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a Striper song. That could have been on a Striper album. And they could have, but I really tried my best to make it less Striper sounding and try to keep it separate from that. Uh, but you know it's really impossible. Once I start singing or once I write the song, it, it's gonna it's gonna have those flavors and and take on that that sound and that style. I've been playing guitar since I was five. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's my first instrument. I'm a guitar player before I am a singer. Singing didn't come till I was 12, 13 years old. You know, it, it, professionally speaking. Right. So I've been playing guitar much longer and. I think I, I don't get recognized as a guitar player because, you know, Oz is usually the face of the guitar player. I mean, he's, he's the guy that people think guitarist for Striper when, uh, you know, they start breaking it down. Oz Fox, he's the player. Even if I'm playing the guitar in the video and playing the solo in the video, uh, people, a lot of people don't know I play. I have someone at every single show, and I kid you not, that's every show, come up to me afterwards and say, you know, the thing I learned tonight is that you play guitar. And I just sit there and smile and shake my head and think, <laughs> wow, that is so weird. Well, I think if it goes by the typical lineup of a rock and roll band, you know, Kiss, Paul Stanley's the singer and rhythm guitar. You know, right. uh, the Beatles, John Lennon was a singer and rhythm guitar. Everybody that's the singer is a rhythm guy. Uh, you know, I'm sure Dave Mustaine probably went through that a bit too when Megadeth started, that you're kind of splitting the leads. And in a lot of ways, you know, your playing is, is more recognizable than Oz's, but because you're behind the mic, they just, a lot of people aren't in the, in the, in the musicians bubble that we are, where we know every single player and every single guy, you know what I mean? No, most I people, get it. You know, oh, yeah. Most people just watch and kind of say, oh, okay, he's the singer. So he, he must not be doing those solos as well. No, totally, totally. And, and I understand that. I just read something about Dave Mustaine being a great rhythm guitar player. You know, he was on a list of uh, greatest rhythm guitar players or whatnot. And I just thought, wow, he's a lead player. And that's okay. It, it Does it matter in the grand scheme of things? No. But at the same time, someone like myself, who, you know, I really work hard on, on solos and guitar parts, probably more so than vocals. And then to have people think you don't play or, or not know that you do play, it's a little frustrating sometimes. I've learned to kind of let it go over the years because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. But man, I, I love playing guitar. I always joke about someday when I can't hit any of the notes and that day may come, I'll hire some young stud <laughs> and I'll go, I'll go out and just play guitar. And then people maybe will know that I play guitar. Right, 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 right. But going back to 10, uh, how did you decide on, on which guests you were going to ask to play? Cause it's a, it's a great collection of uh, amazing guitarists on here. Well, you know, as I was writing the songs, each, each song, each day, I was thinking about each guitar player and uh, you know, a song like lay it down, for example, uh, a very priest feel. And, and for some reason I had Marzi, uh, Montessori in mind for that. And I just felt like he's the perfect guy for this. As I was writing Son of Man, I knew that Andy James was the guy for that because I wanted it to kind of step up and go to a little bit of more of a Euro metal kind of vibe. And I knew Andy was the guy to take it there. Uh, so I had those guys in mind. Now, there was there were a few that I didn't, like Better Part of Me. I had someone else in mind. 
I didn't even have Jeff Loomis on the books. And Jeff reached out to me mm. and said he was he was a Striper fan, had seen us a few times, and he would be honored to be a part of my album. And I thought that was amazing, you know, that Jeff Loomis of Arch Enemy wants to play on my album. And uh, that was such an honor to me. And then the minute that he reached out to me, I knew that was the song for him. It just all, it all fell into place. The hardest part wasn't, you know, placing the guitar players with the songs. The hardest part was collecting the the tracks at the end of the day. So once we began mixing, I didn't have all the tracks. There was one track that I was I was waiting on until the day of mixing. <laughs> and that was that was a little nerve-wracking. I was literally ready and prepared to play play the solo on that song. Just do it yourself, right? Yeah. I would had no other choice. But thank God I got the track and thank God everything lined up, everything worked out. And, you know, sometimes that can be a disaster and a catastrophe if you have different players on every song and you're doing it like this where you're sending tracks in and they're being mailed in. I mean, that's that's difficult. Even just from I know whenever we've had guest performers on our records, you have to get permission from each record company. And even that can take such a long time to, to do that process. It really can, man. And, you know, the legalities and, and all the stuff that's involved, it can be uh, tiresome and it can actually bring things to a halt and where you have to change the plan. That being said, I didn't have to on this. And thank God it all worked out. And I love how every guy, every guest, guitar players and vocalists really brought something special to that song and to the album it helped to take it to a new level. And that's what I love about it. It's it's really incredible. So, so you mentioned as you were writing these songs, you had the different guys in mind. Are these all favorites of yours? Or like, for example, you're talking about a guy like Tracy Guns, who's kind of unrated as a player, uh, underrated as a player. Uh, I mean, Rich Ward as well. Are those guys yeah. that, that you just knew, okay, I got to write something for these guys or this solo was going to fit this song perfectly? I knew that the solo was going to fit the song. Like those two guys as well. Tracy, I knew was perfect for that song, Ricochet, because it has a little bit of a throwback 70s thing. And I don't want to say bluesy, but a little bit more straight ahead. And I knew he'd be perfect. And then Rich Ward for the song Tin. Tim was a little darker, a little more eerie. I knew he'd be perfect for that. And Rich, Rich is one of those guys, and I'm not just saying this with you on the phone, but Rich is one of those guys that, is probably the most underrated guy on the album. That's my opinion. And yet at the same time, delivered the most. He really took that song to a whole different place. And when I heard it, you should have seen me in the control room, you know, I was grinning ear to ear, you know, and I just I just felt like me, the engineer myself, Danny and I were looking at each other like, yeah. This is awesome. Oh, man. You know, we were high-fiving it all around, and Rich really delivered on that. So it was so cool. And that to do it like this and have these guest players, and you were a guest on a song as well, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, it really, when you hear those tracks, you get them back and listen to them, and you go, yes. And it's what you envisioned, or even not what you envisioned. It's so exciting because it takes it to a whole different place. I love that. Well, once again, too, I mean, you know, you mentioned Jeff Loomis calling you to do this. And I know Rich was super excited that you asked him. And you do have a lot of influence from doing this from for 35 years at the highest of levels. I know you're a very humble guy and probably don't see that. But I think a lot of people are going out of their way to try and impress you because it's a big honor for them to be on your record. 
Well, man, you know what, dude? It's it's an honor for me to have them on my record. And I said this in a recent interview, and I'll say it again. It really does feel like I'm the dad, and these are my kids. <laughs> and and I'm and they're standing up to bat, and they hit a home run, and I'm I'm the proud dad jumping up and down in the stands, running out on the field, right. giving them a hug. That's how it feels to me. And, you know, the people that think anything other than me being humble, you know, I, I really uh, work hard at being humble and reminding myself that I'm, I'm nobody. You know, I'm just a guy that farts and bleeds like everybody else, you know, and I, I am just a, a regular schmo. Uh, and the people that think that I'm not humble, that I'm an egomaniac, I think that comes down to, you know, I'm very opinionated and I'm very I voice that. You know, I'm open and honest and I, I give my opinion and, you know, I'm always giving you my side in interviews and whatnot. And I think people, you know, mistake that as ego, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes. And, and I, but if they were to have a cup of coffee and breakfast with me, they might walk away saying, man, was I wrong? Right. You know, because I am I am a, a fairly humble dude. And, you know, I want everyone else to have the spotlight, not me. You know, I love I love bringing these guys into my albums and bringing Mariah Formica on my album and Tony Harnell and all these guys, you know, so the spotlight can be on them so that people can say, oh, gosh, I remember him or, oh, man, I've never heard of her. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that. Well, I mean, you know, talking about that and then all of the records that you have, I mean, like you mentioned, having 10 solo records, do you have, you mentioned it kind of in passing, do you have any... I'm sure it's the, the million dollar question of, of taking, you know, this a lineup out to play some of these songs. I mean, One Sided War was amazing, too, had so many great songs on it. And going back all the way to the first Michael Sweet solo record and real. I mean, there's so much material. A, have you ever thought about doing that? And B, is there a market to support it? Now, when you say doing it, that's the part I miss. You mean doing like a, a, a tour? Yeah, like a Michael Sweet solo tour. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure, man. I mean, I, I I don't know what kind of market there is to support it, but I think there is a market to support it. I only see that just due to, based on my solo acoustic shows. Right, exactly. Uh, but that being said, I would assume that there'd be a much bigger, larger market for the full electric band solo show. Now, I haven't done that since 2000. So you're talking about almost 20 years. Right. And... My vision is to go out and do it next year and do do a couple of uh, short ground runs, select city, key city dates, uh, put together a phenomenal band that makes people that blows minds where people say that that's the best band I think I've ever heard live, you know, or at least try to and um, go out and just kill it. And play the solo songs, focus on solo songs, and then also play some Sweet and Lynch songs. Because a tour with Michael Sweet and George Lynch most likely is, likely is never going to happen. Never say never, they say. Right. But, you know, I tried and I tried and I tried to put together something with George. And there always seemed to be some reason why we couldn't do it. And, oh, no, I need to rehearse this song. Or, oh, no, I got dates on here. And, oh, no, <laughs> I even tried to organize, like, Lynch Mob opening for Striper and and. and you know, right. going out and making it happen that way. And it still didn't happen. So uh, it would be a great opportunity to go out and play some of these songs. And I, that's going to happen for sure. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I think there would be a good market there, especially like you said, if you put together kind of some sort of a, of a super group, shall we say, of, of great players. And you've played with so many good ones. I'm sure you could have a lot of guys that would come out and and, and want to do a run with you. So I, I think there would yeah. be a market for it, for sure. Yeah, is it a Coliseum run? No, but arena run, for sure. Two and three nights in arenas, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when uh, I was living in Knoxville in 94, um, and you were gonna you you were doing a run, and that's when uh, I think you were supposed to play like kind of like some kind of a church community center or something. And I was all excited to go because there was nothing to do in Knoxville, and it got canceled. And I was extra I was extra bummed because you had Dennis Cameron of Angelica on guitar. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, dude, that was a killer band. It was it was Dennis Cameron of Angelica on guitar. I had Scott Harper on bass, who used to play for White Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Huseman on keyboards, vocals, who wasn't really well known, but the guy sang like a female Robert Plant. Mm. <laughs> so he had this really high, unusual killer voice, great player, great guy. And then on drums, I had a guy named Jamie Wallum, who now plays for Tears for Fears. Oh, wow. And Jamie's great. He's he's sick, man. He's he's a great finesse player. It was a fantastic band. And uh, we went out and did some shows. And man, it was so special. Really a good time. Do you remember that some shows got canceled? Like remember the, the Knoxville one got canceled? I'm sure you don't, but I do. I know I do remember. Really? And the thing is with Michael Sweet, Striper or Solo, there's always gonna be shows that cancel because I'm one of those guys that always seems to get sick. My Now, when I'm not touring, I never get sick. <laughs> but when I'm touring, the minute I hear, uh, oh, I'm sick from someone, I know I'm screwed. Oh, right. And then literally a week later, I'm I'm sick. This happened in Australia just, just recently. We sat down on a plane, got on the plane. I'm feeling good. I'm like, yeah, let's go do this. We sit down and we get in, in the air and this guy next to Lisa – starts sneezing and coughing, sneezing and coughing. And he did that for 14 hours. And I said to Lisa probably 14 times, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get sick. Well, guess what? I got sick. And I I had to get through those acoustic shows sick, man, but I did it somehow. And that's what happens to me every tour. You need to get one of those things that the Japanese people wear, one of those little doctor's masks. So you just wear that when you're on the plane. Yeah, at least I had one, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know it, but she had one, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, you're kidding me!" I, I would have put it on because this guy was sick as a dog. Let's talk about um, you know you mentioned all your solo stuff. Let's talk about the idea besides your solo record ten was also to talk about your most famous record. Uh, just had the 33rd anniversary, which is the perfect time to talk about a record. Most people want to talk about on the 30th anniversary or the 35th anniversary, but we do things differently. So the 33rd <laughs> anniversary of To Hell with the Devil, I mean, is, is it amazing to you that it's been that long since that record came out? Yeah, it's it's mind-blowing, actually. And it tells me how precious time is and how fast time passes. Uh, so to really take advantage of every moment, savor every moment. But yeah, that album, uh, it, it was an album that we had no idea was going to be special. We had no idea that it was going to be the benchmark and, and, you know, the album that took Striper over the top and, you know, our pinnacle album. But it, it is and it was um, making it. It was just another album. 
You know, we had uh, a, a producer, co-producer by the name of Stephen Galfast, who told us that he produced Missing You by John Waite to get the gig. Mm-hmm. And we wound up finding out later that that wasn't true. Uh, and, and thank God that didn't hurt the process. You know, it still wound up being a, an amazing album. Why did he Why did he just take that song of all songs to lie about. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, man. It, it, it was really weird. It, we were talking to a number of producers. Bernard Edwards was another one we were talking to. That would have been interesting, right? Power Station. Oh, wow. Power yeah, Station. Yeah. I mean, we would have probably had a little bit more of a groove-based album. It would have taken on a different vibe. And oddly enough, we wound up hiring a bass player. He was a bass player. So he probably would have played bass on the album, too. Uh, but, you know... It wound up, To Hell with the Devil wound up still surviving everything that was thrown at it, you know, um, and we wound up turning in our, our, certainly our most popular and biggest selling album to date. Is it, uh, is it my best album, my favorite album? No. I, I like it. I think it's a great album, but it's not my favorite. Soldiers, I'm going to give that that award to Soldiers because there's something special about Soldiers all around, you know, the writing process, the recording process, the energy of it, the excitement of it, the stress of it, everything about that era makes it my number one. But to hell is a close second for sure. But you, you had to have felt the kind of the buzz in the air because you're talking about, um, you know, like for, for my Striper experience, I remember I saw you uh, on this show. It was like 60 Minutes in Canada. It was called W5. And they did a big piece about Striper. And it was it was all based around kind of the yellow and black attack era, which was very close to when Soldiers came out. But there was a, a kind of a real buzz about you guys at that point in time. So when To Hell With The Devil came out, you know, it was it seemed like um, the coronation of Striper. I mean, did, did you get that vibe from the record company at all? Or did you was it just business as usual, like you said? No, no, no. We got totally got that vibe. Now, I, I don't know if they would ever admit that. But uh, there was, I mean, to give you just the basic uh, backstory, I mean, the label, once we turned in the Christian lyrics and we, they got to read the lyrics in front of their own eyes, they realized what, you know, these guys are a hardcore Christian band and they actually considered dropping us. And this is Enigma Records? Yeah, this was Enigma. They considered dropping you out. Wow. They had second thoughts about like, gosh, what are we going to do with this? Mm-hmm. Although, although that's always kind of a head scratcher to me because here we are. They're coming to see us beforehand, before they sign us, hearing Jesus is the way. And they don't know we're a Christian band. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, really? Are you deaf? You know, but but that's the story. And that's what they a- actually have gone on record as to say. And um, that being said, I think there was a sense of... Uh, they didn't know what to do with us. They didn't know how to sell us, how to market us. And they were learning. It was a learning curve. And as we went along and the first album came out, it was very successful. They, the smiles got bigger and like, okay, yeah. You know, and then we did soldiers and it was very successful. And then they, they started feeling more comfortable, like, okay, now we know what to do with this. And they did. They were brilliant. They did some incredible things. Then by the time To Hell With The Devil came out, that's when they were in full glory of doing different colored vinyl and picture disc and really marketing the band properly. And they knew how to market the band. And the secret to it was they didn't try to market us to strictly Christian or they didn't try to market us to strictly mainstream. 
they did both, which was very smart and exactly how it needed to be done. Now, to this day, I can't get labels to market my solo stuff to the Christian market. Really? Yeah. It's crazy. They don't know what to do with it or how to do it. And the fact of the matter is we have a, a Christian base out there, people that may only buy our albums in a Christian bookstore. You know what I mean? Sure, After church. So that's the difficult part is to make people understand that. Especially in this day and age. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a one of a kind band. And a lot of times people don't know what to do with us. And, and that goes for the live side of things too. You know, we're not a, a typical band. So you have to think outside of the box and really be creative. Uh, and you know, that's why a lot of times we don't get some of these big tours. Our, our name is put in the hat for a priest tour or a maiden tour. And sometimes we're skimmed over because they just assume automatically, oh, it's that Christian band. Nah, that won't work. And the, the sad part is, is it would work. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll be Mr. Ego here and say that it will work better than any other band. Because we're a perfect fit for priests mm -hmm. to open a priest show. Perfect fit. And, and it, it's just we're never given the opportunity because of the Christian tag. So. Well, you'd also be a perffect fit for you know the 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 Def Leppard Motley Crue poison tour. yeah, I mean, it's the right time frame. It's the right sound. It's the right, you know age group of fans. I know, dude, I know. And you know, a, a tour like that, obviously, Motley Crue, uh, Def Leppard poison, it, you can you you can figure it out. It does it doesn't take a rocket science just to figure it out that you know they're really looking hard at at the tick at the ticket. Mm -hmm. Uh, who's going to bring people into the to the chairs, right? Right, and and that's that's a big deal. Uh, I, I believe it's been rumored it's a Live Nation thing, so even more so. Uh, so you know, you would think, well, Striper, you know, Striper isn't selling out arenas, and you know, they're not doing this and they're not doing that. But at the same time, we do have a really strong fan base that's been consistent for thirty six years. And here's the cool thing about it, that, and there's something to be said for this, even more so than the, the dollar sign. And that is the the integrity and the controversial side and making people go, what? Mm. I would never have expected that. How cool is that? Right. I got to see this. Instead of putting rat on the tour, nothing against rat, I love him, or you. putting, you know what I mean? Putting another typical band that, that everyone would expect Striper would be the one that nobody would expect. And I think it would make things much more interesting. And I even tweeted something, I think, last night, like, we'd be a great fourth band. Uh, and we would be. But, you know, will we ever get that opportunity? Who knows? We'll see. When, um, once again, we're talking about when To Hell was being recorded. And, you know, back then, obviously, there was no internet. It was all about Metal Edge magazine and Circus magazine. That's where you get your you know, get your information about the, the records that were coming out. And there was a picture that was released of Striper. And I know Tim isn't in the band anymore, but the first yep. pictures from that session were with another bass player. And oh, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. always a little, like, confusing because then when the record came out, Tim was back in the band. But also, too, on the record, a guy called Brad Cobb plays bass. So tell us about the bass situation around that time frame. Yeah, it, well, it was a little confusing, and I'll certainly take some of the credit for that. I won't take it all. Uh, it it put, gets put on me often. 
that I'm the guy that didn't allow Tim to play on that album. And, uh, I'm the guy that did this. I'm the guy that did that. And the fact of the matter is, is that's just not true. Uh, we, as a band, decided Oz, Robert, myself equally, um, and, and also, obviously, you know, the producer, that it would be best to bring in a different bass player. Because, and the reason why is, you know, we had the guitar tracks recorded, we had the drums recorded, and everything was gluing together. And then it, it, we started tracking bass, and it all of a sudden was not gluing together as much. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a solid as we were hoping it would be. It wasn't taking on that sound that we were looking for. So we all knew that the only way to resolve that was to bring in a different player. So we started auditioning different players. We actually auditioned uh, Ricky Phillips, who plays for Sticks, mm-hmm. and he was in The Babies, and he's a great player. And we, we auditioned a number of players, and then we wound up auditioning this guy, Brad Cobb, who was a local guy who blew our minds because he just locked in and gave to hell with the devil that glue literally glued everything together and made it just just lock and groove and and we all went the minute we heard him play we're all everyone in the room was like wow and now for live we needed someone else because brad didn't have that look you know brad had real short hair Mm. and he didn't have the look we were going for. So we were looking at a guy in a band called Leatherwolf by the name of Matt Hurick, who we thought would be perfect because he had a little bit of that Steve Harris maiden vibe and had a good look and everything. Yeah. And we wound up bringing him in. He actually wore the outfit made for Tim, had to be tailored. <laughs> yeah, because he was much shorter. And, um, you know, and, and, and then it wound up being a situation where we resolved things with Tim because things didn't feel right. Cause Tim was in our band for a few years prior to that. And we were friends and brothers and whatnot. And it just felt weird continuing on without him. So we wound up bringing him back, asking him back. But you know, the, the funny thing is, is not a lot of people know that, that Tim's been in and out of the band. You know, that, that was this last time was the, uh, the fourth time, I believe. Right. 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 Third, third or fourth time. But uh, you know, so it, it's, it's one of those things where it's always been one of those situations where it, it, it was unsettled, you know, or at least it felt that way. But uh, Matt came in and then it didn't feel right. And then Tim wound up coming back and then we wound up touring with Tim and continuing on with Tim. So that's the backstory to that. So Matt never played a show and never recorded on the vocal. He was just there for one photo shoot. He was there for one (laughs) photo shoot, maybe even one picture. And he wound up only playing uh, at rehearsals. There you go. Which is which is kind of sad. I mean, I, I mean for him, because you know, I, I don't know where Matt is or what he's doing right now. And he's a great bass player, you know, really good player. Yeah, and Leatherwolf was one of those bands that were were fairly good, but there was just so many bands on the scene that you had to be more than just than just good to to get some steam back then. Absolutely. <laughs> You mentioned about the costumes, and you had some great ones, especially for Tell with the Devil. Who was was there like a place in LA that was like a costume maker? Was it somebody that you found, <laughs> a friend of the family, or how did that work back in those days? 
I wish there was a place in L.A. that made our costumes. <laughs> that would have made life a lot uh, easier and a lot less expensive. We used to, in the early days, for the beginning of uh, Striper, Rock's Regime, and then even the, uh, the first Striper uh, photo shoot, you know, we made a lot of our clothes. Mm. So what we would do is we would, anything we couldn't find black and yellow, which was almost nothing, we would find in black and white, and we would dye it yellow. So we would we would have these big oh, pots wow. of yellow dye on the stove, and we would be dipping clothes in there. We did that for years, man. Hmm. And we would buy carpet, shaggy, real fuzzy like <laughs> carpet, and we would paint it yellow and black. That's great. And then wrap it around our legs, and we, we did stuff like that. We made our own clothes. And I got to say, if you go back and look at those old clothes, sometimes they were cooler than the new clothes. Yeah. And I mean, and then we started spending, you know, ten grand a guy to have Ray Brown make our clothes, who made clothes for everybody in that period, uh, you know, White mm-hmm. Snake, Bon Jovi, you name it. And Ray was the, he was the dude, he was the guy, uh, but you know, it came with the price and I guess you get what you pay for. And um, that's when we had, we got into the to hell with the devil, to hell with the devil and God we trust against the law. Those were all Ray Brown. Oh no, not against the law. Actually against the law was a floor. She made clothes for White Lion and another. She was his competition, basically. Gotcha. So there was a certain person that you could go to to kind of get the get the hot rock and roll clothes made. Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, we'd go and be fitted and you know measured and all that stuff, and we'd have to go two, three, four times, and you know, and it would literally to have two outfits made per guy. It was you know mm-hmm. eight to ten, eight to ten grand. We'd we'd drop forty, fifty grand easily hey and when you're wearing those on stage four or five times a week i don't care if you have two outfits or not they're going to get smelly either way too oh yeah dude. and and it's like you know you're pleading you're pleading with certain band members are, are on top of i'm not going to name <laughs> names certain band members are on top of that other band members are like you're pleading with them to please wash your clothes yeah, we had a, a tour last year i think we did 150 gigs and our drummer wore the same clothes every show and oh, i was like no dude, you gotta get like like get three or four versions of the same outfit. You got to wash those more often, man. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. Cause when you're on a bus, uh, again, I won't name names, but someone in the band wears the same clothes uh, and then puts them in a, in a junk bunk. Right. An extra bunk. Yeah. And when you walk by that bunk, you think something's dead in there. And, and 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 you like basically it gets to the point where you don't even go back there. Yeah. You know? It's just stay away from that area. <laughs> oh man. Uh let's talk a little about the cover because um when I bought the the record, I remember I bought it first day, Sam the Record Man in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. It was the uh the, the album cover that you, that most people know, which is black with kind of this really cool updated striper logo with a triangle in the back and it looked really, really cool. I thought it was great. Little did I know that there was another cover that was a million times cooler that was that was banned, I guess, uh from you guys. Yeah. I know, man. Well, it's that controversy that follows Striper, and people think we're out to achieve that on our own. And we're always trying to do things to create controversy. And that's just not true. I mean, sometimes it is. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's not. And with that album cover, 
the title obviously was a controversial move, but the, the album cover itself really wasn't. We were just trying to depict uh, you know, the imagery to go along with the title. And there's four angels, you know, basically tackling Satan and then pinning him and, and putting him back in hell. That's what it's supposed to look like. And there's a chain being ripped off of Satan's neck and thrown off in the distance. And it's a pentagram. And uh, you, if you kind of look closely, you can see that and get that. But at the same time, I can understand why some people in the church would be up in arms over that. And they were certainly And all the Christian bookstores decided they weren't going to carry that album cover because of the pentagram. You can see it in the foreground. Yeah. Right, now, right, right underneath the logo. Yep. And to this day, when I post a picture of that, I get comments to this day. If I posted one right now, someone would say, what's the deal with the pentagram? Wow. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. And it's like, people still don't get it. And it's like, well, look at the chain that's that's uh, attached to the pentagram. That's kind of leading to towards Satan. That's broken, and you can kind of see and make out that that's something that was just ripped off of his neck and tossed about. Uh, but you know, people just they want to look for something that's not there. I mean, we get comments all the time about the triangle. You know that we're Illuminati, <laughs> and I mean, it, it's it goes on and on and. That we use imagery to, you know, portray who we really are. We're really Satanist. And and we're really this, and we're really that. And it's like, really, come on. I, let's be real here. Jeez. Well, I mean, it, yeah. It's so silly. There was there was a time frame when every rock, I mean, remember Knights and Satan service, and we are sexual perverts. It's like every single band was really just a, a, an agent for Satan, and especially those evil striper people that claim to be for god you know yeah yeah it, it, it's it, it's so true and that's funny because i got caught up in that bandwagon too i mean going way back the night in state service thing with kiss when i was younger i was like wow man that's bad <laughs> you know <laughs> it's so stupid right, right. silly yeah. <laughs> as if they were sitting around like you know at a black magic ceremony going this is the name kiss but it's nights the same service um, were the four angels on the cover uh, kind of be, supposed to be representing you guys? Well, they don't kind of. They do. I mean, if I take my shirt off, I look just like that. Just like that, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm built. I, I work out every day, and I'm really cut. I just – I like to stay humble and hide You're, it, you're you like the I mean? janitor from The Simpsons. You just look normal. Then you take your shirt off, and it looks like one of these angel guys. Dude, it's insane. Yeah. Insane. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, oh, man. Are they, are they pulling – Is so – we had a debate. I told you that we did the classic album clash, which is something we do on the show. We did soldiers versus to hell with the devil with Richard Christie and Howard Jones, as you know, great fans as well. We were debating, are the angels pulling the innocent guy out of hell or are they stuffing the devil into hell? Yeah, they're stuffing the devil into hell. Gotcha. And, um, I think what it's supposed to represent the two sides is, you know, the devil comes in many forms. Mm. And sometimes as someone that or something that we think is good. Right. You know, and that was that's what that was supposed to represent. Each angel, angel does represent each guy. So you can kind of see, tell that mm -hmm. by the hair, the hair color, you know, and then the buffest one is, is the Michael Sweet Angel. You, you know, you, you can you can tell that too. He's the best looking <laughs> yeah. one too. Also, he's holding a guitar to prove that he's the lead guitarist as well. 
<laughs> oh man it looks like the oz one had his hair blown out though straightened <laughs> for, the, for the photo shoot <laughs> let's do a quick rundown of uh, of the tracks here something that, that we always like to do um just memories of of the songs sure um abyss into hell with the devil first of all i mean back in those days even to this day i'm a big believer in an album has to have an intro and Abyss is perfect, and it's a great way probably to open the concert at that time frame because you get the little opening uh, synthesizer piece going right into this classic title track. Tell us about both of those. That is a, a thing uh, that we, we wanted an intro, and we wanted something that sounded like hell, like the Abyss, you know? And the keyboard player that played on that album, which is a guy by the name of John Van Togren, he played honestly and he played all of me and he was the guy that uh, helped us create that, that one minute long or a little over a minute long uh, piece. And uh, it's perfect because it really does sound like hell. It, it, it sounds like those little uh, creatures making the sounds. It sounds like demons and it has that eerie, creepy, hellish sound to it. So it was perfect, you know, and, and we, we banged that out pretty quickly. And then how about uh, To Hell with the Devil? It sounds like, from what you mentioned before, it sounds like a Robert Sweet uh, phrase. Yeah, that is. I mean, Rob came up with the title and uh, helped pin the lyrics. And, and, you know, I wrote the music to the song and um, kind of finished the lyrics. And, you know, it's that straight-ahead anthem, perfect anthem, power, rock metal kind of track. And that's the song... When we finished that and mixed it, that we went to the car and popped in the cassette player and listened to and looked at each other like, whoa, we got something here. That's the one that solidified that. It's also, too, like I said, as a fan, when you hear that, as a, as a, the Stripers always had great opening tracks. And that one was like, you know, you, you always kind of, uh, and you know this, is, as you know, you put on the new Van Halen record or the new Priest record you know when something comes out of the gates with such power you're just like yes oh yeah they're back my band is back you know totally i mean that's the first impression right sure and even then even though we live in a much greater less attention span now uh, you know that's why people just i mean my opinion don't buy full albums and they just listen to one song or stream two songs or what have you the attention span can't handle a full-length album. It was still important even then to grab them and keep their attention, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that was the first impression, that first song. So it was a big deal. Let's talk about uh, the next song, which was, was the first single, Calling on You. Interesting to me because I want to know kind of what was the timeline between the record coming out because it came out uh, October 24th, 1986, when did it start? Uh, was it Calling on You that broke on, on Dial MTV first? What was the relationship between Striper and MTV at that point? Yeah, it was. It was Calling on You. And I remember uh, all the conversations between management and the label of the difficulty level of trying to get MTV to play our stuff. Mm-hmm. I just remember, and we did everything we could to get them, like even hiring the company, Wayne Isham. Uh, who did the Bon Jovi videos. And, you know, we, we we did everything we could to make it that much easier for MTV to play us because we knew it was mm-hmm. going to be a hurdle and a mountain to climb, and it was. And it seems like everything we did always came back with comments. We would submit the video, and then it would come back, and, oh, we don't like this, or can you change that? And, 
we're not happy about this. And we would have to wind up actually re-editing things. And it's, it began to feel like it was just the striper thing. I don't know that that's true or not. I can't confirm that, but it felt that way. And then it was funny because once they would finally approve it and the video would go up, it would go wind up going to number one and beating out Poison and Motley Crue and, and Bon Jovi and all these other videos that were number one. It would go to number one. And, and I think that was the final thing to make us say, wow, OK, MTV, what are you, you going to say the next time around? And then we would submit a video and then they would still complain. It was just it was a never ending battle. But it's so amazing because, you know, I, I can't remember. I mean, nowadays, to be on rock radio is, is still very, very important. And I'm sure it was back then, too. But you never heard Striper on the radio. But you guys are all over the video channels and MTV and, and much music in Canada. So it was almost like you superseded the radio by taking advantage of this way more important medium at that time. Yeah, we had to be creative. And and the sad truth of the matter is, whether anyone wants to admit this or not, is we are and were discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And there's no other way to put it. And we still are. And 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 because of who we are. Cuz we sing about God, cuz we throw out Bibles and we are a quote-unquote Christian band and you know, I don't like that label. Everybody knows that already, but that's what people refer to us as and see us as. And because of that, we're discriminated against with radio, with videos, with uh, numbers, with uh, opening uh, up for other bands, with you name it, across the whole board. And that's just the way that it is. But do you think, like, for the amount that it's the quote unquote held you back, it's also been. Uh, not an advantage in a lot of ways, but it, it has made you stand out. Like, do you think people like you because of it? As many people don't like you because of it? I think so. I think I think that it has shown uh, integrity and perseverance and and gained us respect because of that. And then at the same time, uh, because of what we stand for, uh, I think it's a very powerful thing. And and I think most people. Not all, but most people, even if it's just internally and silently, respect that and applaud that. Uh, but but at the same time, it also opens the door for us to be the the laughing stock and to be spat on and mocked at and, and booed mm-hmm. at, and because we've experienced all that as well. Right, right, right. Was there a time when Colin, you and Free were on the the Dial MTV charts at the same time? I believe that Calling on You and Free were on at the same time. Uh, and I could be mistaken. It could have been free and, and honestly, but there was a time when we had two videos in the top 10 countdown. And uh, that is absolutely true. And it, all three of those videos went to number one, calling on you free and honestly. And uh, that was quite astonishing for a band that wasn't getting any airplay. Yeah, other than just MTV airplay, which like we said, was probably way more valuable. Yeah, it was really mind blowing. I mean, the look was there. You guys, you guys looked great. I mean, that's exactly what bands at that time frame. You know, one thing I always said about other Christian, I know you're not Christian rock band, but other bands that sang about Christian lyrics before Striper, you know, God bless them. But, you know, Petra and the Daniel band and those guys look like people's fathers. You know, kind of like <laughs> nerdy guys with mustaches and kind of balding. And you guys look like, you know, look like you're in Van Halen. And I thought that oh, you can look cool and play 
you know, heavy metal about Jesus as well. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, and I think the reason for that is we grew up in, in the L.A. Uh, street scene, club scene, uh, seeing Van Halen and Yesterday and Today and Smile and Quiet Riot and all these bands. And that's those were our roots. We were a house band with Rat at Gazzari's for years. Uh, Mickey Rat, that is, at the time. And, right. you know, we uh, we were there. We were in it. We were raised in it and brought up in it and cut our teeth on it. And, you know, that's who we were. So when we became, when we changed all the lyrics and we became Striper, we didn't know any other way. We just continued being who we were in terms of our looks and our attitude and our sound. I mean, that's all that we knew. Yeah, well, and that, like I said, that translated. I think it's one of the reasons why you guys were such a perfect band for the MTV era. Um, let's talk about Honestly, still probably, is that your biggest hit to date? In terms of charting, yes, it, it is. Right. It, it's the one, and we literally at that time saw the power of a song. We, we went from you know clubs and theaters into arenas during that tour. Hmm. So on the To Hell with the Devil tour, which lasted over a year, uh, or close, yeah, just over a year. We wound up going into moving into arenas, and and I'll never wow. forget the the power and the feeling of that. And it, it it literally happened overnight, and we saw the fan base just explode and go from you know hundreds to thousands uh, in in the blink of an eye. And once again, too, you mentioned like, and there was never like I, I'm sure you did, but I never saw it striper opening for anybody like you had you know metallica open for ozzy and bon jovi opened for kiss and but you guys never had that tour you basically just did this all on your own getting to arenas we built it all on our own man we did i mean in the early days we opened for a few bands like when bon jovi came through town we opened for bon jovi we opened for anthrax we we opened for zebra there were a few bands but never on a full tour is what I mean. No, never on a full tour. In the early days, yes. But then once we got into tour mode, we headlined. And, you know, every all the bands opened for us. I mean, we had Hurricane open for us. We had TNT open for us. Loudness open for us. We had White Lion open for us. Uh, and Trickster open for us. On and on and on and on. And um, it, we were very fortunate enough to build – the name and the brand to the point where we were able to bring in uh, the tickets and, and the butts into the seats and, and and headline. Really cool. As the principal songwriter, we're talking about the, a song like The Way, which is still a classic Striper song that you guys play to this day and probably the best Striper song that you didn't write. How did that come into play? Did you guys did, did I submit it to you and say, what do you think of this? Did you kind of have approval over everything? No, Oz actually wrote that song. And it's, yeah, exactly. I think, yeah. I think it's one of our heaviest songs. Best song, I'd argue that. It, no, but I, said, I mean, I said the best song that you never wrote. Oh, no, 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 totally. It's one of those things where the way it worked back in the day, I mean, it still works to this day, is songs often are submitted and often don't work. You know, like back in the day, for example, there were some songs that were submitted that were very almost, I, I want to say almost like Elton John-ish. Really good, but more so would fit an Elton John album or songs that might fit this style of album or songs that might fit that style of album. And you got to really be careful, as you know, being in a band, about the style of song that you're doing. It's got to fit who you are and what you've 
built, you know, and it's got to be have that striper sound to it and that strap, striper style to it. If it doesn't, why are you doing it? It can't be the mentality. And I've heard this said amongst bands before, like, hey, man, you know, as long as, you know, five of the songs are good, what does it matter what the other five songs sound like? Right. And you just you got to laugh at that. That's one of the most ridiculous things anybody can say. They need to all be great and they need to all fit within the album. So that's a very important thing. And, you know, it, it's hard being in the band and being a guy that makes those decisions because a lot of times you have to outvote the popular vote. You mm-hmm. know, and it's got to be what's best for the album, especially Absolutely. as a producer. Yeah, that's something that a lot of people don't raise, even for myself, as, as we've you know matured as songwriters and worked with different people. You know, sometimes you got to take yourself out of the equation. Like you mentioned, what's best for the song? What's best for the album? Exactly. Uh, what's best for the band? And no doubt about it. Like, you know, you fast forward to uh, In God We Trust, there's a few songs on that album that I wish we hadn't allowed to be on the album. You know, mm. and uh, it's one of, one of the songs is uh, Come to the Everlife. Mm. And it, it's it's just not that it's not as good a song as the rest. It's just that, in my opinion, it doesn't fit with the rest, you know. And it was it was uninspired. It was hard to sing that song as a singer. It's it's very difficult to go and sing a song if you're not feeling the song. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to be feeling it and like passionate about it and excited about it. And if you're not, you got to question whether or not it should be on there. So that's that's an that's an example of one that I feel maybe should not have made it on the album. We, we might have should have said, well, let's come up with something better than this song. Um, and there's other songs over the years too, you know, probably from every album. But that's just an instant uh, example of uh, you know, the flip side of that coin. When you talk about side two, the record, I mean, side one had all the big hits calling you free, honestly, but side two strong as well. But it's almost like there's three rockers, a real commercial tune and uh, another ballad. Yep. Um, is that on purpose? Did you, did, are those the best songs that you had? Or did you say, listen, we got to have a certain amount of rockers. Uh, a, guy, a song like Holding On is very poppy, which was also part of Striper's sound as well. Uh, is that calculated? Or is that just kind of what came out of you guys at the time? I think it's just what comes out. Uh, you know, we were listening to myself as a writer. I was listening to Priest every bit as much as I was listening to Journey. Mm-hmm. So I loved that side of music as well. Lover Boy, Journey, Sticks, uh, you know, gosh, uh, so many ballady, Survivor, so many ballady kind of bands mm-hmm. that had more ballad. I love that. And I think that came out in my writing, came out in our in our albums. Uh, we didn't sit down and say, okay, we got to have this and that, and we don't have this and we don't have that. We didn't do it that way. We just kind of wrote the album and it came out as it came out. But oddly enough, we were on this two ballad kick for a while, <laughs> you know, with, uh, uh, you know, soldiers under command with tell the devil within God, we trust there were two ballads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then we were on this and we got to have the book in heavy tracks and, you know, um, I always, I'll tell you my favorite songs on, on Tell with the Devil. Uh, my favorite heavy track on that, on that album is More Than a Man. Uh, easily, hands down, in my opinion, the best song on the album in terms of heavy. And for so many reasons. 
and still to this day live that's one of the best songs that goes over the best live and then my favorite poppy song on that album is the one you just mentioned which is holding on mm-hmm. but nobody really knows about that song it, it never got the recognition or the light of day that calling on you got and i it should have. I'll tell you this. When you guys played it live, when you did To Hell with the Devil in its entirety, yeah. Richard Christie was crying during Holding On. Was he really? Yeah. <laughs> so does he like that one as well? He loves it. He loves it. So there, like you said, there's a contingency of your fans who love that song. Wow. Well, it's, it's got this special, unique mix of, of edge and pop. You know, mm. it, it, and that's that goes for calling on you. That goes for uh, always there for you. That there's so many songs. Another one that kind of takes the back seat. That's one of my favorite songs on Soldiers Under Command is "Waiting for a Love That's Real." Mm. That's a real poppy slash metal track too, and it's got the combo of both. When you uh, as as we start to wind down here, when you guys did that tour. Um, playing to hell in its entirety. What songs were, were fun for you to play? Because, like we said, you played to hell, calling you free all the time, more than a man. But, like you mentioned, there's a bunch of songs that you that you never have played, or maybe never played live at all. Well, yeah, holding on, which we played rarely. Uh, we didn't play too often back in the day. That was always a fun one to play. And when we started playing it recently in Japan and here in the states, it, it became one of my favorites. I am reminding me of how cool it is. What a great song it is. Uh, More than a man, always. We that's probably been in the set from day one, uh, every night, and I love that song. There's something about it. It never gets old. It's got such powerful Christian lyrics. It really does. It, it but, really but they're not they're not up. cheesy. They're not cheesy. They work. Jesus in your heart. It's time for you to start giving God all the glory. Like, you know. It's a fine line for for a, a, a band writing Christian lyrics to not be cheesy, but that one I, I felt it being just so powerful. Totally, like you just wanted to put on the armor of God and go fight some Satanists or something. No doubt about it, man, for sure. And that's that's one of my favorites. And then another one that I always loved playing, and we don't play it very often, was "Rock in the World." Great tune. I love playing that song live. And, uh, you know, I don't know why we don't, but it's just in the old days we used to all the time. And I'll never forget the feeling. It had such an energy live and people loved it. Yeah. Great chorus. Great hook. Great breakdown to sing along in the middle. You know, it's. uh, Yeah. Yeah, man. No doubt. So here we are 33 years later. The legacy of To Hell with the Devil as, as your biggest record. I think it sold two million albums. I mean, that's probably your highest seller, I would imagine. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny about that, and I wish we could go, and, and we could. Uh, we just need to take the time and money to do it and really rally and tally the numbers because $2 million was the certified cutoff, okay? But since then, it's sold a lot more. So I'm not even sure where we're at with that album, but hmm. far beyond that, far beyond $2 million. Um, and, you know... It's interesting because Striper, I think we've we've kind of done the numbers on all the albums over the years, uncertified, and we're we're sitting in the in the ten million mark plus, which is right. kind of kind of crazy to me for a band like us because uh, who would have known? Who would have thought that a band you know four nobodies from Orange County singing about God would ever accomplish such a thing? And it's really mind blowing. 
Yeah, I just Googled something here. It says, Tell the Devil went on to receive a Grammy nomination and was certified platinum on January 6, 1988, uh, selling more than 2 million copies. So that was two, well, certified platinum in 88, but selling more than 2 million copies. That's 30 years ago. I'm sure there's got to be another million in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. It's it's quite a few more. And I've asked someone to help me put together those numbers, and we haven't talked in a while. But uh, I would love to, to know the facts on those numbers to be able to go, okay, here are the hard sales. That would be amazing. Last couple of questions for you. Um, so you mentioned that next year you might want to do a, a Michael Sweet electric band, full band show. What do you have coming up uh, over the next over the next year before that? Well, Striper started on a new album in January. <laughs> You've probably written 10 great songs for it already. I haven't yet. And that's the scary thing. And, and I always freak myself out because I always wait last minute. I work well under pressure, and that's what helps me to deliver. But, man, dude, I haven't written one song. <laughs> and we start in uh, a little over a month. So I'm thinking, okay, I better get to work here. And we're going to turn that in in probably April, May. I'm going to do solo shows. Striper's going to do striper shows. A lot of striper shows, a lot of solo shows. I got this Sun Bomb thing with uh, Tracy Guns that I'm going to be singing on sometime next year it was supposed to be this year and it wound up getting pushed back a little bit due to schedule conflicts and uh and then i'm, I'm gonna still keep working on a another album with joel holkstra a full length and then i'm also talking uh, about the next solo album and how to achieve that and when to achieve that so i'm just gonna keep doing what i what i'm doing people ask me if i'm gonna do another sweet lynch album i really don't know i, I want that to be you know, a, a dual joint effort. I wanted us to both work it the same. I want to go tour it the same. And, and if that's not going to happen, I don't want to do it. So it probably won't happen, but you never know. Uh, I just look at it this way. I got to write off a, a bucket list, check off a bucket list with playing with George Lynch, uh, one of my favorite guitar players. So there you go. Uh, there's a lot in store, man. I'm, I'm 56 years old. I've got at least a little more time left in me, and uh, I'm going to try to crank out another 10 solo albums and another 10 or 11 striper albums. <laughs> See if I can do it. You, men you mentioned that you're just the guy that farps and bleeds. You just fart good songs. That's what you do. <laughs> I don't know about farting good songs, but I, I, can fart, I can fart songs all day long. If they're good or not, I don't know about that. But, man, I love to write – I get excited about writing and I've always got a song in my head and an idea in my head. And that's something that actually is a blessing and a curse because it's always there. Last uh, question for you. What's your favorite song on To Hell With The Devil? And what's your favorite song on 10 oh, at this moment today? Favorite song on To Hell With The Devil. I'm going to go with, since I just mentioned it, More Than A Man. Mm. Because I think that's the one that comes back, even if it's not for one month or one year, it always is in the grand scheme of things. It, mm. it always comes back full circle to that song. So that's number one on that album. Number one on 10, I'm going to say at the moment is Shine. And the reason why I'm going to pick that song is the energy, the message, the, the vibe. You know, it just puts a smile on my face. And I think anyone listening, it puts a smile on their face as well. It's a really uh, powerful, needed song in our society today. No matter who you are, just shine. You know, that's you. You are special. You are unique, and you do shine. You just may not know it. 
So, you know, remove the curtain and shine for the world. And that's really what the song is saying. Well, dude, you definitely shine. You always have uh, a great influence on rock and roll, a great influence on, on the world. And uh, congratulations on everything. And uh, looking forward to everything you're going to be putting out soon, dude. I know there's going to be lots of great stuff to follow. Hey, buddy, thank you for always being there and, and, and standing by me and standing by us and being a, a light, a striper light a beacon, you know, and, and always, always giving us the time of day and supporting us, man. It means the world. I can't tell you. It's it's important. It's very important. And and we love you for it and we appreciate it and can't wait for another thirty-six years. Lord willing. We'll see what happens. Thanks. Thanks. Sounds good, dude. Hope to see you soon, man. Okay, brother. See you, Chris. Thanks, brother. Go back to sleep. All right, man. God bless. Bye. <laughs> All right. Thanks again to my boy, Michael Sweet. Such a great uh, album to hell with the devil. So happy to hear those stories. And his new solo album, 10, featuring Rich Ward from Fozzy. Also amazing. You can get that wherever you stream and download music. And you can also get a limited edition Michael Sweet 1994 vinyl album. It's been out of print for quite a few years. And Michael decided to do a run of a thousand vinyl copies uh j-e-s-u-s all this in heaven too a lot of great tunes on that so order yours at michaelsweet.com because once they're gone they're gone and go crank up to hell with the devil right here right now as we think about the weekend and think about coming up on wednesday it's been long awaited we recorded a few months ago i got a lot of requests when are you playing it when are you playing it the guy who brought me into wwe vince russo makes his talk as jericho debut it's a great conversation so enjoy your weekend do a lot of Christmas shopping. Go check out Omaha Steaks, Omax, uh, DDP, Yoga, Steven Singer Jewelers, all that great stuff. And remember, uh, we love you here at Talk is Jericho. So in the meantime and in between time, uh, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs. And we will see you on uh, uh, Wednesday. Yeah, boy. To hell with the devil.